Well, that can only mean one thing. It is time to talk about the horrors of post-op complication. So we're going to talk about the nursing management of people that have had surgery and how to prevent many of the complications that are likely to occur. The American College of Surgeons reported a 17% complication rate in general surgery in 2012, and that's almost one in five. So there's a lot of things we need to talk about so that we can learn how to prevent them. Some of the common post-op complications we're gonna talk about are breathing problems, pain, risk for infection, nausea, fluid volume problems, urinary retention, constipation, and neurovascular dysfunction. So let's get into ineffective breathing pattern. The definition is the state in which the inspiration and expiration does not provide adequate ventilation. And that means they're um, not able to take in enough oxygen adequately. So it could be related to medications they've been on. Obesity complicates things. Pain, of course, if they're in a lot of pain, they're not gonna be breathing deeply, especially if they've had an incision in their uh, abdomen or chest area. They might have anxiety and fear that's making them not breathe correctly. They're holding their breath. Um, decreased energy and fatigue, they're just too tired to breathe. And increased oxygen demands related to the stress response. So we've talked about that. They're in a hypermetabolic state, and so they need more oxygen, and they're just not able to take in enough to uh, adequately ventilate themselves. And also it could be some kind of underlying pathology. So they might just have a lung problem of some sort that is not letting them oxygenate enough. So an ineffective breathing pattern would be evidenced by dyspnea and a respiratory rate that's either too slow or too fast, less than 11 or greater than 24 at rest. The depth might not be quite right. They're breathing too shallowly or too deeply. The timing is not right. Normal inspiration is one to two seconds and expiration is two to four seconds and that rhythm could be screwed up. The use of accessory muscles indicates that they're struggling to breathe. If you listen with your stethoscope, you might hear atelactic crackles and there could be a sudden increase in temperature. So there are some different manifestations of uh, inadequate oxygenation and there's a chart here in your PowerPoint. So with the central nervous system, restlessness, agitation, uh, anxiety, those are all words that they may tell you, hint, NCLEX might hint to you that the patient is not well oxygenated. The cardiovascular system, their blood pressure might be up or down. They're probably gonna have tachycardia if they're not breathing enough or they may have bradycardia. There might be some dysrhythmias. Skin cyanosis uh, would be a bad sign that would be uh, turning blue. And the renal system, if they're not um, oxygenating, they're not moving enough blood through the body, they're not gonna have enough urine output. So it would be less than 0.5 milliliters per kilogram per hour. So what we can do for interventions is monitor them. So put them on a pulse ox. If somebody seems to be not breathing quite right and every time you check them sporadically, it's not looking good, put them on a continuous pulse ox. Mobility is important for everything, but for breathing, it's gonna make them breathe more. They're gonna inhale more deeply. They're gonna be taking in more air if they're up moving and walking around. Deep breathing and coughing. So having them uh, take a deep breath using the incentive spirometer is a good tool for that. And normally that will trigger a cough. If there's stuff 
tickling around in their lungs when they take that deep breath or they use the IS, it's gonna trigger a cough. And when they do cough, remember we want them to cough it up. We wanna see the sputum, we want them to get it out because we want to assess it and we want them to clear their lungs so that they're able to breathe better. Pain control is something we might need to do because um, like I said, if they're in pain, if they've had an abdominal or chest incision, they're not gonna be wanting to take deep breaths. However, there's a problem there is that if we treat their pain too well, they're gonna stop breathing, right? So it's a delicate balance that we wanna do. PT may help them uh, by, by getting them up moving and showing them different ways to move so it doesn't hurt so much. And then RT may come if they have respiratory medications or they need an nebulizer treatment. And then teaching. We wanna teach them why it's important to breathe and why they need to clear out their lungs. Because if they don't, they're gonna get a pneumonia. And if you say pneumonia to an old person, that's gonna scare them into doing whatever you want because they will have known somebody who was hospitalized with pneumonia, maybe died of pneumonia, so they're gonna do whatever they can to, to prevent it. And deep breathing is something very simple that they can do. So interventions, mobility. If they're not able to walk, turn in position every two hours. But early ambulation is gonna be the biggest thing. So uh, it increases their ventilation, makes them breathe more. It helps their morale, makes them feel better, like they're doing better, they're not just lying in the bed all day. It can help with their appetite. It can make them more alert and more awake. And it helps with peristalsis. It gets things moving. It can help with voiding. It gets the, the GI tract and the GU tract just flowing and, and moving using gravity. And it decreases venous stasis. So get those zombies up and make them walk. When do we want to do that? Well, it depends, but ASAP. Okay, not until their pain and nausea are controlled. So maybe a couple of hours. Um, but as soon as possible. Deep breathing and coughing. Teach them to splint, especially if they have an abdominal incision. They can splint that. They want to sit with their head of bed up. That's gonna allow them to expand their chest cavity better. It gets the uh, diaphragm out of the way. And the incentive spirometer, there will be a chart that comes with the incentive spirometer, and I advise you to take a copy of that when you see one so that you know how much, how high they're supposed to be getting. It's usually done by height and age or maybe weight and so you should be able to figure out what the goal is and set that goal and make the person do it. When they're using the incentive spirometer they should inhale slowly and deeply hold for three seconds and then slowly exhale and they should do that ten times every hour until they're ambulatory and I would say until they go home just always make them do that ten times an hour and a good way to do it is in the hospital everybody has the TV on most of the time just tell them whenever there's a commercial on take a couple of hits off that. So if they do a few breaths every time there's a commercial and there's a lot of commercials throughout throughout an hour of TV, that should get them their 10 hours every hour. I mean 10 uh, instead of spirometer uses every hour. And then the cough is gonna be stimulated by that deep breathing. So if they take the deep breaths, if they use the incentive spirometer, that's gonna trigger a cough and again, we want them to cough that stuff up. Uh, medications. They may have an inhaler that they brought from home or they may have uh, something that they're getting from respiratory therapy, a nebulizer treatment, so we would need to contact respiratory therapy when, we, uh, when they need that. Sometimes it's scheduled throughout the day or maybe a PRN. And then um, teaching just all of the above, so the IS, deep breathing and coughing, splinting, using the inhalers, and the rationale. So again, remember if we tell them why we're asking them to do something, they're much more likely to do it and what the consequences of it if they don't do it. Atelectasis is the next thing. So that is collapsed airless alveoli. 
and that's not a good thing, and it's due to ineffective coughing or ineffective breathing. It can also be related to dehydration, decreased lung expansion. So what we're gonna see on assessment is sudden fever, post-op day one to two. When the temperature is up, think IS. Make them breathe, make them use the IS, and it will go down. They may have tachypnea, and if you're listening to the lungs, you may hear crackles or absence of sound in the bases because they're just not getting the air to the bases. So make them breathe, make them use the IS. It's gonna open up the alveoli, it can cause a cough, and it blows off hot air. And remember where we want them to, how we want them to breathe is deeply and we want to assess them everywhere. So front, back, sides. And remember where the lungs are, they're not down by the kidneys, so it should be about midway between the elbow and the shoulder or where the nipple line originally was. So uh, listen in the correct places. So when we have atelectasis, remember there's a, it's like a little mucus plug that is um, blocking the airway and everything below that is shut off then and they can collapse. They just don't have the air to keep them open. They're gonna collapse, they're gonna suck shut and they're basically gonna be dead. So get that mucus out of there. If we don't, we're in danger of developing pneumonia. And again, you say that word to old people and they're gonna be scared. What pneumonia is, is an inflammatory condition with collection and pooling of secretions in those airless collapsed alveoli. And what we're gonna see on assessment, they're gonna have a productive cough with colorful sputum, might be green, might be yellow. Uh, they may have pleuritic chest pain. And this is not always present, but what that is is a pain that's in your, you feel it in your lungs. If you've ever had bronchitis or pneumonia, you might feel like a pain of burning and itching within your lungs and you wanna to try to rub like the side of your chest, but it doesn't help because it's inside. You may hear bronchial breath sounds due to consolidation, so they're not getting the air all the way into the lungs, so you're only hearing it up by the bronchus. Another thing is egophony, which is the E to A sound. So that's where you have them uh, say the E sound, and what you'll hear is an A when you listen to it with your stethoscope. You'll hear that from the inside. If we do a chest x-ray, you'll see alveolar infiltrates and consolidation. And if we do labs, you're gonna have increased white blood cells and a positive sputum culture. So we, if we get a sputum culture, there's gonna be bacteria in it. The next few slides are a case study of a post-op patient that has some respiratory problems. I'm not gonna talk about those right now, but do make sure you review them and go over them again in your study groups. So we're gonna talk about potential alterations in temperature now. Fever can occur at any time, and a mild elevation after surgery is not uncommon, and it's related to the stress response. But a moderate elevation over 100.4 or 38 degrees Celsius is usually caused by respiratory congestion or atelectasis, like we've been talking about. Rarely it could be caused by dehydration. So up to 12 hours, the patient may actually, 12 hours post-op that is, the patient may actually be hypothermic. So they may have a low temperature, and that's because of body heat that was lost during surgical exposure. Remember, it's very cold in the OR, and also if they had a large incision, like in the abdomen, it's been open for a couple hours, a lot of heat from, from their body, from their core, has been lost. There also may be some effects of anesthesia cooling them down. The first 24 to 48 hours, typical elevation up to about 38 degrees or 100.4, 
is related to the inflammatory response and the surgical stress response. Could be lung congestion, atelectasis. So the first thing again we wanna do is make them breathe. It won't be until the third day and later when we see a temp over 100 that they have a wound infection, urinary tract infection, respiratory infection, or phlebitis. So whenever somebody post-op has an infection, everybody, I mean a, a temperature, everybody starts worrying about infection. They think, oh, they got an infection. No, they don't, they just need to breathe. So that's when you make them do the IS. So whenever you get a temperature that's, that's higher than the normal, um, you don't wanna just record it and don't do anything, right? You don't just chart it and go to lunch. Uh, you're gonna, you gotta do something about it. So we're gonna give them the insam spirometer and say, hey, do this 10 times in the next half hour. I'm gonna come back and check it and I bet you that temperature is gonna be lower. And it will be, and that'll prove both to you and the patient that the incentive spirometer is necessary to lower the temperature and keep their lungs clear. So again, don't ever chart a problem unless you're gonna chart the solution. So always do something about it when you are charting vitals or anything that's out of the ordinary. So if they are gonna have a wound infection, they're gonna have a fever that spikes in the afternoon probably, and it may be near normal in the morning. If they have intermittent high temps with shaking chills and diaphoresis, that indicates that they're going septic. So again, on what post-op day would we expect to see an elevated temp related to a wound infection? Day three and later. And what are some things that we do to prevent post-op infections? Well, it starts in pre-op. We're gonna be doing teaching to the patient about um, using, washing their hands and, and keeping things clean in their room and once they go home. We're also gonna give them pre-op antibiotics. That has cut down greatly the amount of wound infections that patients get. We're going to maintain sterility in the OR, and we're gonna have a, a septic technique on the floor when we do things like dressing changes or when we give medications through the IV or injections. We're gonna wash our hands before we touch a patient and after, and we're gonna teach the patients to wash their hands and help them wash their hands. If they can't get out of bed, bring them a, a washcloth and clean their hands up, give them some sanitizer. And let's not keep the urinal on the breakfast tray. Thank you. So our nursing assessment, we want to do frequent temperature assessments. And again, if we are charting a temperature that's out of the ordinary, we want to chart it again later after we do the intervention and it's come down. So you chart it at 8 o'clock, it's, it's 38.1. You have them do that incentive spirometer 10 times. You come back at 8.30, at 8.45, you check it again, and it's gone down to 37.3. So make sure you chart the all, all of your assessments whenever something's out of the ordinary. You want to keep charting until it gets back into normal. We will observe for early, early signs of inflammation and infection, but again we're not going to really see that for a couple of days. We can encourage airway clearance, so again use the IS. If we suspect that there is an infection that they might be getting pneumonia, we can order chest x-ray and cultures. And if they have a temp over 103 or 39.4, that's fairly high, then we're gonna give antipyretics and body cooling measures like ice. Now, we are often, we have to be careful with this because we're often giving Tylenol along with their pain meds, which we're gonna talk about next. So if they've just had a Percocet, which contains acetaminophen, we can't then just turn around and give them acetaminophen again because now they have a temperature, they already had it. So we need to be very careful and keep, keep an eye on all the medications that they've had throughout the day. So next we're gonna talk about pain. Now, what do you know about pain? It's whatever the patient says it is, wherever and whenever they say it is, right? And our nursing diagnosis is, is acute pain. 
Everybody in the hospital for surgery is gonna be in pain, so I would encourage you not to use that in your care plan. Uh, you can use it once and only once, so you need to be more creative and think about what else is going on with the patient. We have uh, pain scales that we use, zero to 10, and we wanna make sure that the patient understands that. If they don't, we have the smiley face scale, and there's a few other um, kind of humorous scales that you can get online. Uh, but we wanna make sure that we're using that scale. We need to chart our pain before and after an intervention to make sure that it was effective. So, acute pain, the definition of that is a sudden or slow onset of any intensity with an anticipated or predictable end. So somebody's had surgery, we can anticipate that they're going to have pain, but we can also anticipate that it's gonna have a predictable end in a few days, they're gonna get better. The etiology or what it's related to, it uh, could be the surgical incision or the manipulation of the tissues below the surface. There can be anxiety and fear that's keeping their muscles tight and tense, or they may have muscle spasms. They may also have reflex muscle spasms, especially in the case of a fracture or an orthopedic surgery where that's been disturbed, the muscles have been disturbed, they are likely to spasm and that can be very painful. So we wanna remember that unrelieved pain can affect all our body systems. So do we think it's a priority to treat it? Yeah, it is because we need them to be able to uh, participate in their treatment plan and they're not gonna to wanna to do that when they're in pain. So defining characteristics of acute pain, they may have a verbal or coded report. They may say, hey, I'm in pain. Or you may ask them about their pain and they might say, it doesn't really hurt, it just kind of burns. Okay, well, if, we're gonna, if you wanna say that, we'll just stick with their terminology. So on a scale of zero to 10, how much does it burn? Okay, burn is pain, it's pain. They're just not saying pain. And sometimes there's reasons for that. They are trying to be macho, or they don't wanna you know, appear weak or whatever. Um, but use whatever word they're using and we're gonna still call it pain as we chart it. They may have a guarding or protective behavior. They might, if it's their abdomen, they might have their hand over their abdomen. They don't want you to touch it or come near it. Uh, they may have a, a facial mask, which would be, could be like a, a frozen expression. Like they might have a big fake smile on, going, no, I'm fine, I'm really okay. Or they might have you know, a terrible grimace. Uh, so look at their face, look at their expressions. If it's minor pain, they may have antalgic positions or gestures, which means they're things that they're doing to kind of avoid pain, so ways that they're moving or you know, doing things very um, out of the ordinary to, to avoid the pain. They may have a very narrowed focus, like all they can think about is when you're next bringing them that pain medicine. Or they may have distraction behaviors, which is kind of the opposite, where they're doing everything but thinking about it because you've already told them they can't have the pain medicine for another half an hour. So they're busying themselves and they don't really want to look at you or talk to you because they're busy on their phone and they're saying, "That's this is what I need to do to uh, so I don't think about the pain. And then lastly, autonomic responses. Now, the vitals, sometimes that's the only thing we have to go on. If somebody is in a PVS, a persistent vegetative state, they can't tell you that they have pain because they're unconscious but we can tell that by their autonomic responses. So if we go and assess somebody and they are unconscious, they may be sweating, they may have, um, they may be have a, a grimace on their face. If you take their, their vitals, their blood pressure's probably up, their heart might be racing. So those are all things that tell you they are in pain. They can't tell you that they are, but their autonomic responses are telling you that they are in pain. So we need to pay attention to that. So if you work with people that are in PBS, you need to be sure that you are uh, assessing them thoroughly and treating them because you know even though they're unconscious they do still feel pain and, and we don't want our patients to be in pain so expected outcomes oh. 
we want their pain to be managed. We want them to express satisfaction with their pain relief. So we want them to verbalize a decrease in the number. So if they were at a 10, we want to show that now they're down to a four. We want them to have fewer complaints of pain and we want them to be able to participate in their post-op activities. That's really important. So if they're still in pain, they're not gonna go walking with PT and they're not gonna you know, um, wanna get up to the, to the chair and eat or get up to go to the bathroom. So they need to be able to participate. We want them walking, we want them doing PT, coughing, etc. So we have to quantify our pain on a scale of zero to 10 or similar. If they're not able to use that, well, there's different scales that the hospitals will have. And once, whether or not we get that number, uh, we want to ask them to describe the pain. So what are some descriptors of pain? And if they don't know what you're talking about or they don't know how to answer that, you can suggest things. So is it burning? Is it sharp, stabbing, throbbing, crushing, squeezing, radiating, pulsating? Is it constant? Is it intermittent? Does it hurt more when you move? Does it hurt more when you lie down? So you need to suggest that sometimes because people, this is not their vocabulary, right? This is your daily vocabulary as a nurse. To them, it's not. They don't, all they know is it hurts. So we need to get that described so that we can accurately chart it. And we also want to ask them where it hurts. And that may seem dumb, and sometimes they'll tell you it's dumb. They'll say, I just had my knee replaced. Where the hell do you think it hurts? Well, we can't assume because maybe they have a headache. Very often, people have headaches because either because of the pain medicine or because they're addicted to coffee and they haven't had it, and they get that caffeine headache. So they may have a caffeine headache, and we want to assess that properly. We also, uh, maybe there's something in the bed that's bothering them. The, the, the um, sheets are bunched up and it's you know irritating their back or they've got like a heat rash on their back or that's, or, you know, that's hurting, their back's hurting them. Um, I've found things in beds before. I've found uh, caps for syringes. I've found whole syringes and it's been digging up, pressing into their butt and they've got an impression now of a syringe. Um, that's not cute and it hurts. So we wanna ask them what is hurting. And if they've had a knee replacement, the, the knee pain is going to be pain one. But if they end up with a headache, we don't want to chart that under pain one because that looks like it's their knee, right? So we can, put, we can put that they have no pain in their knee or they have a one or a two in their knee, but then we're going to add a different pain. So pain number two is their headache, and that's like an eight. So you got to make sure that you're charting things correctly in the right spot because the knee doctor is going to come in and he's going to see they got a pain of eight or nine in their knee. What are you doing? Why aren't you, why aren't you taking care of this patient? You know, no, we need to be able to show their knee is fine. It's their head that hurts. So we can teach them relaxation techniques. There's alternatives to pain medication, distractions, repositioning, acupressure, ice. NCLEX wants to know that you're going to try other things. You're not just going to be a pill pusher. And let's face it, sometimes we can't give the pain meds because it's not time. So we need to be able to say that we've done something. You can't chart that somebody has a pain of 10 and you did nothing about it, even though, you know, we know that we just gave them a pain medicine an hour ago. It's not time for more, but a chart auditor, all they see is it's a 10 and you did nothing. So we need to do something. So anytime they have a pain above their intolerable level or above their tolerable level, we need to say that we've done something. So at a minimum, you can say, reposition. You can give them ice. You can say that they're employing distraction, distraction techniques. So you have to do something. So with medications, we need to know the schedule. So we need to look at our PRNs and see how often they are able to be given. And remember, they're not due every four hours. We can just assess and possibly give them every four hours. And you're going to have to explain that to the patient because someone somewhere along the way set you up for trouble because they said you get this every four hours and the patient now says 
it's 8 o'clock, I had this at 3.30, you're late, it's been four and a half hours, I'm supposed to have this every four hours. No, you're not. So you gotta explain the whole PRN situation to them, and I hate that, but that's what happens. Some previous nurse tells them something, or they hear what they wanna hear sometimes too, but we have to educate them about that schedule. We can also anticipate when they're gonna have pain, so we know that if they've been getting it pretty much every four or five hours, you know, kind of around the clock, we can anticipate when that time is coming up that they're going to need it. So we're going to need to assess it as soon as they're able to have it again. So as soon as that four hours is up, we should be in there assessing it. And also anticipate that they're going to have pain because they're going to have physical therapy. So with orthopedic patients, they're usually going to have physical therapy in the morning and in the afternoon. And so when you go around to do your morning meds, you know that PT is going to be coming in the next hour, hour and a half. So you should pre-medicate them. So even if they say their pain is low, we want to medicate them so that they are comfortable enough to do their PT. Then we're also going to want to advocate for the patient. So if what we're giving them isn't cutting it, if the options that they have are not good enough, then we can advocate. We can call the doctor and tell, explain the situation, give them an SBAR report, and uh, request a higher dosage or a different kind of medication. Documenting is always important. We need to document the pain assessment before we give the medication. Make very certain that, that the time on that assessment is before the time that the medication is given. I don't care if you chart it 20 minutes later, you have to make sure your times line up. So you chart the pain, you chart the assessment, and then you're gonna go do something about it. Then you chart that you gave the pain med. Then 45 minutes later, you're gonna come back and you're gonna chart the reassessment. And all of those three things have to be in there. The pre-assessment, the medication given, and the reassessment. So make very certain you know how to do that correctly in your particular charting system. And then lastly, last intervention is we're gonna educate them. So educate them about the pain medication that we have. We wanna tell them about the time frame that they're allowed to have it. And we wanna talk about the limits of acetaminophen, which is something we're gonna talk about next. So as they, as they go home, we wanna make sure that they're not abusing either the opioid or the acetaminophen. They have a strict daily limit that they have to keep up with. So nursing implementation for pain. Um, one thing, first thing to talk about is the patient-controlled analgesia, the PCA, and epidural analgesia. So epidural is where they put that needle into the spinal area, and we talked about that with anesthesia. The PCA is they've got a, a little chamber hooked up to their Alaris pump, and it has medication in it. It might be morphine, could be fentanyl, could be Dilaudid. The patient is able to control that. They can push a button and deliver that medication when they need it. So it provides immediate analgesia and maintains a constant steady blood level of the medication. If they've had epidural analgesia, it may still be lasting. They may have done a one-time shot that's lasting a while, or they may have a catheter in there attached to a little machine that is just continuously pumping the medication in there at a low rate. But let's talk about the PCA. So it's self-administration of pre-metered doses with the PCA. So this is a nice thing because the patient's in control of it. So we gotta tell them when you first start to feel pain coming on, you push that button. You don't wait till it gets unbearable. Or when you know you're gonna be getting up to the bathroom in a couple minutes, push the button before you do. And that's just gonna keep you more comfortable. Sometimes the PCA has a continuous dose so that it's squirting out a milligram every hour. And then they also have the demand dose where they're pushing the button. Uh, sometimes they have one or the other, sometimes they have both. So the epidural analgesia would be where they just have the continuous. So they're just getting a milligram every hour and they're, they're not in control of it. The 
the PCA, they are in control of it. They may or may not have the continuous as well. And that's a good thing that keeps them comfortable. We have to be careful to monitor the respirations every two hours per policy uh, when someone's on a PCA. So we always have to make sure that they're breathing every two hours. Different kinds of pain, we have acute and chronic. And acute is what we've just been talking about, the surgical pain, but a lot of people have chronic pain as well. So they've been dealing with this problem that they had surgery for, either their knee or their back or their hip or whatever it is. Um, they have this chronic pain. They may have been taking a lot of medication at home for that. Uh, so the medication we give them here in the hospital might not cut it. We'll get into that in a little while. Uh, two different, other different kinds of pain we wanna talk about is nociceptive and neuropathic. So nociceptive is our typical surgical pain that's damaged to the somatic or visceral tissues. And so it could be superficial or deep, it could be on the surface of the skin or it could be deep in the organs where it hurts. And then neuropathic pain is damage to the peripheral nerves or the CNS. So where we see this is with uh, people who have spinal cord impingement or spinal nerve impingement. So that nerve is being pressed on at the base where it's coming out of the spine and that causes pain to go down that nerve all the way to the leg or the foot or the hands or wherever that nerve is going. So that's neuropathic pain. It travels along the journey of a nerve. So those are two different kinds of pain. Medications we want to talk about. While patient is still NO, NPO, they're going to have IV meds. Commonly, they'll be given morphine or Dilaudid, and a common dose for morphine might be 0.5 milligrams IV push, Q2 hours, PRN for moderate pain. So what is moderate pain? Sometimes the doctor will prescribe it by number. So they'll say mild pain, one to three, moderate pain, four to six, severe pain, seven to 10. If they don't specifically say that, those are kind of the numbers I would go with. I would say four to six is kind of in the middle, seven to 10 is gonna be severe. So another morphine order might be one milligram IV push Q2 hours PRN for severe pain or for pain seven to 10. <clears throat> so our nursing framework for pain management, we wanna identify their goals for pain management. So that's why we ask what their tolerable pain level is. So at what number do you want us to bring you medication? And if they say, oh, I have a high tolerance of seven, you gotta reiterate that, explain that to them. Okay, so that means I'm not gonna bring you pain medicine until it's an eight. That's not good, we don't wanna do that. So let's bring that down to a more realistic number. And then also you have the patient that says zero, my tolerable level zero, I don't want any pain. You also have to explain that that's not realistic because you just had major surgery and you're gonna be in pain. So what is a realistic number where you want us to bring you medication. And if they just can't process, they can't figure out the number thing, um, just you know, go with like maybe three or four is probably a good tolerable level. So another thing, another thing about the nursing process framework is we want to establish that nurse-patient relationship and that trust. And so part of that with medication is telling them that you're gonna reassess them at 10 o'clock, you better be in there to reassess them at 10 o'clock. If that's when their four hours is up that we know that we can they can have that pain medicine again. So say what you mean and mean what you say. It's very important to have very clear communication with your patients. Provide physical care, uh, just help them meet all of their needs. Manage their anxiety related to pain. Uh, a lot of people are gonna have anxiety because they, they hurt and they're afraid you're not gonna be able to make them not hurt. So let them know in the beginning, you're gonna do all that you can. You've got three different kinds of medication available to you. If none of those work, we can call the doctor. Um, that would be evaluating the pain management strategies, which is the next thing here. So if these three medications that we have are not cutting it, then that's when we're gonna call the doctor 
and see what else we can get for them. Okay, so back to the PRN orders. Once we have, a, once they're able to tolerate food, then we can give them our PO medications. And common PO orders would be hydrocodone acetaminophen. That's a Norco, 5-325, so that means it's got five milligrams of hydrocodone, 325 acetaminophen per tablet. Common orders you might see for that would be one tablet PO, Q3 hours, PRN for mild pain, or two tablets PO, Q3 hours, PRN for moderate pain. Then we're gonna to escalate to oxycodone acetaminophen, that's Percocet, five through 25. Orders for that might be one tab, PO, Q3, hour, Q3 hours, PRN for moderate pain, then two tabs, Q3 hours, PRN severe pain. So these are common orders that you're going to see. And why do we have it ordered that way? Why is Percocet oxycodone with acetaminophen? Well, they potentiate each other. So the acetaminophen potentiates the opioid and also it helps to um, make them take less of it. Okay, it kind of helps carry it longer and has them take less opiates. And we're concerned about the amount of Tylenol that they're going to take. So here's your little mini Tylenol lecture. On January 13th in 2011, the US Food and Drug Administration announced new measures to reduce the risk of severe liver injury associated with acetaminophen. So the makers of Tylenol agreed with that. So the FDA and the Tylenol company lowered the maximum daily dosage from 4,000 milligrams to 3,000 milligrams. This was in 2011. So why then do the hospitals still like to go with 4,000? I don't know. We need to keep 3,000 in our heads and we need to teach the patients about that. So the next thing is that the FDA announced in 2011 that it would uh, limit the amount of drug in products to 325. So we should not have products that have 500 milligrams of Tylenol in them. It should be only 325. And the FDA believed at that time that this limitation would reduce the risk of hepatotoxicity, liver failure, and death related to acetaminophen overdose. The FDA recommended that healthcare professionals discontinue prescribing and dispensing medication in which the combination of more than 325 milligrams of acetaminophen is in the tablet and then they also manufacturers are supposed to stop making formulas that contain more than 325 milligrams and the FDA reminded healthcare professionals to stop dispensing and prescribing medication that has more than 325 milligrams of acetaminophen. In the U.S. hepatotoxicity accounts for more than 50% of overdose related acute liver injury and approximately 20% of liver transplants. Ingestion of 4,000 milligrams of acetaminophen for two weeks resulted in elevation of liver enzymes up to three times normal in 40% of patients. In 2014, pharmacists were requested to notify physicians when an acetaminophen dosage would exceed 3,000 milligrams in any 24-hour period. But who does that fall on now? It's the nurse. So you will see doctors that are ordering Every day, you're gonna see orders that are gonna go well over 4,000 milligrams, but you are the last line of defense at this. You are the last one that can control how much Tylenol the patient is getting. So you need to keep track. Every pill you give, you need to count up how much they had in the, uh, in the last 24 hours. Here's another quote from an article. Acetaminophen toxicity is one of the most common causes of both intentional and unintentional poisoning in the United States. 
It has become the most common cause of acute liver failure and the second most prevalent cause of liver failure requiring transplantation. Acetaminophen is often recommended by doctors and highly utilized in patients in both prescription and OTC products for a variety of conditions. So keep track of the Tylenol. I have a chart here that shows how much is too much. Basically, if you have a tablet that has 325, which is your standard Norco or Percocet, 325 milligrams per tablet, nine of those tablets would be 2,925. So that's just under the 3,000 a day limit. 12 tablets would be a 3,900. That's under the 4,000 limit. So in no, under no circumstances should anyone ever have more than 12 tablets per day. But we really want to keep it more to nine. So we don't want to give these things when they're ordered. We definitely can't give them Q3. You're going to see orders for Q3. Can't do it. Not going to happen. When it's four, when it's Q4, we can sort of give it Q4, but we want to really try to stretch it out. Okay. So let's look at let's look at this back to this order again. So we have hydrocodone acetaminophen 325, one tab, Q3 hours, PRN mild, mild pain. So if we're giving one tablet every three hours, how many tablets are we giving in 24 hours? That would be eight. And on our chart, eight tablets is 2,600. So that's fine. If you want to give somebody one tablet of Norco or Percocet every three hours, have at it. But the more common order is 525, two tablets every three hours. So if we're giving two tablets every three hours, how many tablets are we giving? 16, and that is 5,200 milligrams. And in no situation is that ever appropriate. But you will see these orders all the time, in fact. Percocet is the same thing, 5 through 25. Percocet is stronger. Hydro Oxycodone is stronger than hydrocodone. So Percocet is, is a higher strength medication. However, it still has the same amount of, of Tylenol in it. So it's the same thing. So we can't give it, we cannot give two tabs Q3 hours. Here's something else that uh, some doctors are on top of it and they have taken steps to, uh, to curtail this problem. And so what they'll do is they'll order extra strength Percocet, 10 through 25. Q3 hours. So if we were to give 10 325 Q3 hours, again, we'd be giving eight of those in a 24-hour period, which is only 2,600. That's fine. I'm happy. That's great. However, nurses don't think, and they don't read, and they see, oh, Percocet, I'm going to give them two. So they give them two 10 325s. So not only have they greatly overdosed them on oxycodone, now they're giving 20 milligrams instead of the normal 10, they are giving them the same amount of Tylenol as they would have in a standard 5 through 25 order. So make sure you're reading your orders. Obviously, look at your doses. I mean, you guys know this as students, you're hyper aware of these things, but nurses get complacent and lazy and they're rushed and they don't think, and they just go, oh yeah, Percocet, two taps, and they go give it. Now, there may be some people that need two extra strength tablets, and that's the person that's been taking eight or 10 pills per day at home leading up to the surgery. So they have a tolerance, so they are gonna need more. But your standard hip or knee patient does not need two extra strength Percocets. So with Vicodin, if we still see Vicodin where it's five, 500, which um, we should not see, but occasionally that may crop in there. Um, if we were to give that Q4 hours, in 24 hours we would give six, and six times 500 is 3,000, that's fine. If we were to give two tabs, Q4 hours, that is 12, and that would be 6,000. So we do not want to do that. Okay, a more appropriate dose for Vicodin, if it's 5,500, we could do 
8Q six hours. And that would mean we're giving it four times a day, we're giving eight tablets, and that's still just the 2600. So always keep track of your Tylenol doses, add it up, go back in time, 24 hours, and add it up until now, and that, that indicates if you can give it now or not. And don't set up the next shift either. Don't, don't go you know, right up to the limit and say, okay, well, I've given 3,900 and they're not, not going to be able to give any more for a long time. So um, everybody has to, has to work together here and make sure that the patient is safe. So whatever pain meds you give, always just reassess, just poke your head in there and ask them how the pain medications worked. And that's where you're going to chart it. Remember, we've charted it before we give the med. We're going to chart it afterwards. And then another thing with nursing implementation, we want to notify the physician and request a change of medication if the order fails to relieve the pain or if it makes the patient excessively somnolent or they have other adverse reactions. Very commonly, people will have some itching with opioids and that's um, not really a true allergy, uh, but it is something that we can treat. So if they don't have Benadryl ordered as a PRN, we can call the doc and ask for that. It's a good thing to give them the Benadryl and relieve the itching because um, we still want to be able to give them the, the pain medication. One more thing to talk about regarding pain is gerontologic considerations. Elderly people are gonna be more sensitive to opioids and, and things that produce sedation and CNS effects. So we want to start with low doses and titrate slowly. So never hit the 80 year old lady with two Percocets right off the bat. So we can start with Tylenol and then increase it up to maybe one Norco, then two Norco if we need to, then Percocet. So we're gonna slowly titrate up. They have an increased risk for NSAID-induced GI toxicity. Acetaminophen overall is going to be preferred for mild pain. And opioid, do, opioid dose should be reduced 25 to 50%. So very little opioids for the elderly.